Greetings everyone, I'm Bevan Holloway. Welcome to the first episode of the Smarter Bulletin podcast. Each month we bring you an interview with someone from the frontier of what's possible in education. This month, Michelle McCracken, who teaches a year 5-6 class at Berenpore School in Wellington. Now apologies for the occasional audio glitch, or perhaps we should just call it the lockdown signature sound. Let's get underway. So, Michelle, thank you for agreeing to be the first subject of the Smarter Bulletin podcast. This all kind of happened really quick. Um, But yeah, I think um, what you've got to say will be really interesting for people out there. Cool, yeah. Thanks Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. So I think before we get into sort of some stuff that's too deep, I suppose it'd be worth people just getting a sense of what your room looks like in that broader sense of look. So maybe give us a bit of a rundown of what people can see when they go in the room. Um, I'm really lucky. I'm in a new build, which was nice. It was like a clean slate when I moved in there. Um, But it's pretty open plan. And I used to be a bit of a, a furniture hoarder, I think is what my principal used to call me. And now I think we've, we've minimized, we have a bit of a minimalist theme in the classroom now. Um, went through a period of everybody wanting their own desk. And now we kind of hot desk as much as we can in the classroom where it's freed up the space. We have more kind of working areas, you know, an area where you can definitely see kids coming together to work on a project, collaborate or create or make in that area that they've claimed. Um, It's pretty, I think I used to be a bit of a, I I coined the term Pinterest teacher, where if you go on Pinterest and you look up classrooms and everything's labeled and laminated and has chevron patterns on it, I, I think I've gone away very much, very quickly gone on that. The walls are covered with the things that the kids are working. It's almost like the walls are a sandbox or a sandpit where they're pinning stuff up, stuff they want to remember, stuff they want to come back to, stuff they want other people to look at, stuff that they're proud of. Um, One teacher came in and said, it not bothered her, but she noticed that a lot of the things were hung crookedly on the walls. (laughs) So it was I think it's one of those where the kids have taken ownership of what the walls look like, what goes on them. They've taken ownership of the layout of the classroom, those spaces. They're very organic and fluid. They they appear and they disappear. You know, furniture moves around a lot, or sometimes there feels like there's no furniture at all. So it's a it's a, kind of like you come in one day and you see one setup, and you come in another day, and it's completely different setup. Yeah. So that sounds like there's a lot of freedom of movement in that class. What types of things do you have in the room to promote that, I suppose? Um, I th- one of the things that I established really quickly was the idea of what's your space, what's touchable space, and what's not touchable space. And I think when I started teaching, um, I had a huge no, like an untouchable space, you know, like I, every first year teacher has a desk that's about the size of a small continent and that's your untouchable space and other bits are untouchable but now my space is quite small and establishing that for the kids that everything is touchable everything's available to them has really been a a, I guess like an inspiration for them so in my classroom we've got material 
materials, like loose parts out. I've tried, I try to keep them as tidy as possible, but there are lots of loose parts that they can use in whatever, whatever fashion they want to. But we also try to have lots of resources for them that they can try out and with them. I had two um, abandoned uh, sewing machines that someone had donated to the school and needed work. So we got those fixed up. Um, we always, we have a small kitchen. There's no oven. It's a, um, where the kids bake and make quite a lot of kai that we share together for morning teas. There's, they've started this tradition very quickly of um, birthday cake. So anytime there's a birthday or slightly before or slightly after or we have a birthday cake. So there's lots of um, food, you know, around so that they can make and bake. Um, and the, the biggest thing we found that's been helpful is library catalog to just bring books in all the time so that they, they have books that they've chosen, but also just books that I've picked up because I've heard conversations in the mix about something they're interested in. Yeah. Fantastic. Um, it almost sounds a little bit like a, a home type environment, which is really lovely. And obviously it has really, you know, that relational aspect is obviously quite strong. You know, we think about the, the birthday reference you just made, but what about the curriculum stuff? Uh you mean like actual resource connected well, to the curriculum or yeah, the like stuff a math that, book? Or? <laughs> that teaches, like a, what you've described sounds really nice, but a teacher might walk in there and then be worried about how kids are going to learn how to read and write and, and connect with all the learning areas. Um, yeah, I used to think you had to make that stuff really explicit. You know, like you need to to have a writing wall or a maths wall or something or another corner. But I found, you know, like John Holt talks about those teaching, like uninvited teaching. It kind of felt like that where I was literally pushing curriculum in their face. I found when I pulled back a little bit and went with some of their, their interests and things that they were passionate about, it was easier to slip those curriculum areas in. It's more subtle but it's also more organic and more natural. So then the writing wall disappeared and the math wall and the reading corner, you know, the reading wall disappeared. And we just established, for example, a library corner, you know, where they can pull books and set a corner that just um, technology where they can come together or, you know, even the sewing things where it, they just become these little islands of learning, but it's like an amalgamation of all the, the curriculum areas. Mm, lovely. So the thing that was in my head then was like the the writing wall disappeared, but that doesn't mean that the writing disappears, right? No, indeed. The, yeah. they, they actually begin to see the curriculum areas as tools. You know, when you force them to write about what you did on the weekend or, you know, the good old essay or recount, they see no purpose. But when it's embedded their choice or their passions or their, you know, projects, they go, oh, yeah, I do understand now the importance of a structured email to a complete stranger that I'm asking for help. Mm. You know, they, they, they put more time, more care, more effort. The drafting, you know, period actually goes longer, as does the editing period. You know, you always feel like that's the pulling teeth part where you're trying to get them to go back and reread your work. 
when it's purposeful, when it's meaningful, they will go back and do that because there's, there's love, there's importance to them in it. Mm. Yeah. So what got you to that place? I mean, that's what you're describing is a, is a long way from a, what would be, I guess, classed a traditional classroom context. Yeah, I would say, you know, I was thinking about it the other day. It's probably as as old as my son, you know, he's going to be five. And so I did, you know, did a bit of maternity leave and you go away and you come back and in your mind you go, I just come back and it's the same. But, But there's something about that away, even if you don't have a baby to go along with it, the time away helped to go, oh, I'm a different person. It's a different situation. But one of the key points in that was I had kids in my class that, for lack of a better way to describe it, school should work for them. You know, it, they, they're, you know, kids from families where there are no issues. They've got, they've, they've got keen imaginations. They want to learn, but school wasn't working for them. And, and I just felt like, there's something wrong. Like we can't keep doing the same thing, you know, and, and expecting different results. I was like, if it's not working for the kids that it should be working for, there's something wrong there. So it was that idea that there has to be something different and, and maybe a little divergent or maybe a little avant-garde, whatever word you want to use. But it was that idea that I had a, a, a group of kids where there was so much potential and so much, just so much of everything, but they were opting out and disengaging from school left, right, and center. And, you know, that's, that was that moment where I was like, Oh no, something, something's not right. And so it was, that's kind of what started me on this path of going, well, what else is there? You know, there's best practice, what they're telling us to do, but best practice isn't working. So what else is there for these kids? And that's where it was that whole idea of, um, well, you know, listen to the kids, first of all, what are they interested in and what can you do about that? And I think that's where I started. Like every year I do a class movie. I don't know why, you know, my colleagues think I'm crazy, but that's that time where it's like everybody shines, you know, and you know, that's kind of that, those little differences where I go, well, I put down a lot of the, that was national standards, put down a lot of that stuff and went, well, we're going to spend a term focusing on this thing that we're all interested in. And then it's kind of evolved from there with research and other stuff. Yeah. Yeah. What do you like about what you're doing now? What do I like about it? I like that the kids like it. You know, I, I, there's always, you know, with teachers, you always want to do a good job. You always want to feel like there, there's something, you know, you've done a good job, but I, I like that the kids actually like it, not in that people-pleasing kind of way that kids do with their teacher, where they're like, oh, I love that lesson on full stops that was two hours long and you made me write 65 sentences. It's like they actually like it. And the the connection and the feeling, you know, like that gut feeling that something has changed for these kids and and they're thinking differently and deeply about their life and about what they're interested in, you know, that's that's what I like about it. Um, yeah, that it, it feels, it feels different for all of us, but not in a scary way, like in a more, in a more natural way. So you just said that you've got this year five and six, right? Yeah. You just yep. said that you've got kids at that age that are thinking deeply about their life. I mean, yep. that's not a normal thing to claim for someone that age really, is it? 
yeah, you, yeah, that's kind of the stereotype. A, eh? they're still children. You know, they mm. they don't have deep thoughts about the world. You know, they they just want to watch cartoons and play Fortnite all day long. But when you actually listen to what they're saying, you know, these are the beginnings of of their identity of who they're going to be as adults, you know, when they're developing their beliefs about empathy and sympathy and the world and, and learning, you know, they, they have more agency, you know, it, these are these really precious times where you go, I can plant seeds that might take these kids somewhere different in their lives, you know, that makes them question or think. And a few of us have had those people in our lives that have made us kind of question or, or, take advantage of an entity that we wouldn't, you know, so it's, it's a kind of a precious, a precious time, I think, a precious gift that we can give them at this age. Mm. What are the challenges? Because I mean, I guess, I guess the umbrella pedagogy that what you're doing falls under would be play. Yeah. And most play happens in that year one, two junior school area, but you've, you've gone right ahead and in, into the year five, six, that's your starting point in your, your context. Yep. So what have the challenges been there? Uh, the biggest challenge has been the adult challenge. Like the children get it like right away. You know, I, I at the beginning of the, these last couple of years, I tell the story, I ask them, have you ever had a teacher ask you what you want to, what are you interested in? And you've had some, you said something like, Oh, I, I really love cats. And the teacher makes that face kind of go, mm, could you really just love capital letters you know and they change who they are it's like they you know for them these kids know what they like who they are what they want to do the challenge the adults because the biggest complaint or the biggest feedback I get from adults who are who are scared of this is there's always that window closing on a kid somewhere you know there's the literacy window and the numerate window and if they miss it then they just become worthless in their lives like they won't read and they won't write you know, fighting this idea with adults that children outgrow play, that they grow up and somehow become robotic, you know, fighting the, you know, shifting that paradigm for people, that's been the biggest challenge for me. You know, even even in my own family, you know, my husband's mother and father are both teachers and and for them, this is this is a huge paradigm shift to go, oh, the children have a say in that, you know? Do are your so if we just run with that fear of you know miss them becoming not literate and not numerate, what are you observing in your learners in that field? I think what I'm observing is more choice. You know, when they they and they make a real choice, you know, about literacy and about numeracy, where they actually want to commit to that subject area. You know, when I when there's maths at 1045, not everybody wants to do maths at 1045, but in this, where's the when they have choice or when, when it's embedded in something that they're interested in, then they actually go, oh, I have to ask for help. I have to have a lesson, for example, for Michelle to go, oh, that's what that means, or that's how I use decimals, or that's why full stops are important. Okay, I get that. You know, I think it actually 
you know, it, they talk about deeper, not why, you know, not shallower kind of learning. I think it deepens their learning where, where they kind of then hold on to that content and then they're able to use it again and again and again, as opposed to that regurgitation of content for, you know, say a standardized test. Yeah. What tips or suggestions have you got for people that want to start venturing down the path you've been on? Um, oh gosh, I think it, it helped to read about other people's situations, you know, and they're and not in a textbook kind of way. There are good writers out there who are writing about it and that make sense and that kind of resonate with not just you as a teacher, but you as a human being, you know, how you would want your own children to be thought of and, and, and interacted with at school. I think, um, one of the ways is I, every year I tried to give up something, you know, and, and think about why, why was I holding on to that practice? You know, what was, you know, was it just for safety or is there, is it, is it actually good practice or is it, is there something different that I could do with that practice? I think one of the, the biggest ones is the, the slowing down and looking at the kids and listening to your kids and getting to know your kids even the kids that are difficult, you know, trying to build those relationships with them to figure out who they are, that really makes a huge difference. And that takes time. And I think one of the things I've had to do is, is be okay with things taking longer and not worry that about that, you know, the, that I'm not going to get to something or we're going to miss something really important actually taking time to establish a relationship with my kids, get to know them, what they like. I think some of it is, is, is being a little bit afraid too. You're kind of on that edge of fear and excitement, you know, where you're like, this is something different and it's making things a little bit uncomfortable, but I kind of like that, you know, and, and go and being in that zone and, and being okay with being in that zone. And I think some of it is, is the reassurance that, you're still a good teacher, you know, at the end of you're a good teacher and you know what you're doing and you will educate those kids. It just might look a little bit different than everybody else. <laughs> but it's going to be okay. Yeah. Well, Michelle, that's really, it's really um, great to talk to you and really fascinating story that you've offered um, us today. Is there anything else you want to throw out into the void? Uh, I think one of the things that's the the hard another hard thing is the the loneliness in it. You know, often you're in this situation at school, people look at you like the rebel or the the one who doesn't want to you know conform to the system. But I think what would help in teaching in general is that collegiality. You know, that us coming together and going and, and talking about hard home truths and, and whatnot and saying, yeah, it isn't working. So what can we do to really make a difference? And then actually committing to making change, like that's really hard. Like making change is slow and it's a process and it's, sometimes it's a slog, but I think it's always that like many hands make light work. Mm. You know, if we, come together conversations about it and try some things out. Yeah, that's a really good point, I think. And for me, I guess part of it is thinking about what we're trying to protect. You know, are we trying to protect a system or are we trying to protect the children? And uh, yes. maybe that's the first question to ask. 
Yeah, because saying that the system you work in might be broken is a really scary first step. I school, I still believe that, you know, school has value and it's a good thing, but, you know, that we could definitely be doing things differently. <laughs> I agree. Well, thank you, Michelle. If people want to get in touch with you, is there any way for them to do that? Is email best or? Yeah, email's definitely best. I can, you can, I can pass that on or, yeah, yeah you can right always come visit us. <laughs> yeah, or visit you at Berenpoor School in central Wellington. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Yep, great. My, I'm sure my kids will bake you a cake if you come. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. The New Zealand Curriculum's vision is for confident, connected, active, lifelong learners. And listening to Michelle, I can hear clear evidence of that vision being enacted in an authentic and daily way. And think of all the key competency references we heard as well. I also think what Michelle said helps us to think about relationships in a different way. You see, her starting point is listening to the kids, and she goes from there that's different to the way we usually approach relationships and education. But I think it lays a solid and fertile ground for the authentic learning adventure her kids are clearly on. What's there to be afraid of? For those of you who want to get in touch with Michelle, her email is at the end of this month's newsletter. Thanks for listening.